The following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. We are beginning our series Life Lessons this week. Uh, We did this series, if you were here, you remember, at the beginning of last year as well. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at the lives of different folks in the Bible, and we're going to uh, draw from those whatever lessons the Lord sees fit to teach us from them. Uh, And so we're going to kick off this series uh, by examining the life of Eli. Eli was a priest in the town of Shiloh, and he was the second to last judge over Israel. The events recorded uh, around Eli's life transpire in the 1200s BC, uh, as best we can tell. This is before, uh, real close to, the time of the kings of Israel, and it's overall a pretty dark time in Israel's history. So that's where we'll find ourselves. First of all, before I get into um, Eli's life, I'm going to give you a little bit of backstory. Uh, the book of 1 Samuel opens up by introducing a guy named Elkanah, and he's a man and he had two wives, uh, also apparently a glutton for punishment. Um, all right, that was all right. Uh, I love my wife a lot, but I only want one. Um, And so those wives' names were Hannah and Penina. Penina. Penina had children, and Hannah did not. The scriptures say that Penina would harass and provoke Hannah because she was childless until she would weep bitterly. So Penina was kind of a jerk bully, okay? Um, I kind of wish that someone would have helped Hannah with a comeback, Instead of crying and giving Panina the satisfaction, because you know when bullies bully people and they see people cry, they, it seems to make them want to do it more. But I bet that Hannah would have shut that mouth if she would have busted out something like, "Panina, you know what? You're just mad because every time Elkanah says your name, you don't know if he's calling you or ordering a hot sandwich." <laughs> I think she might have went to her own tent and shut up for a minute. Hashtag Bible burns. You can use that if you'd like. Anyway, uh, so <clears throat> Eli, Eli, who we're talking about, comes into the story when Hannah is in the temple and she's weeping as she prays to God for a child. Uh, she is praying silently, but her lips are moving, and Eli comes in and he accuses her of being drunk, which she is not. So there is a caution here for pastors uh, and leaders. No matter how crazy someone in the congregation might be acting, we need to be slow to accuse them of being on the sauce, okay? Um, <clears throat> so I think what we learn is that you've got to give them the benefit of the doubt until you can ask them to recite the first five books of the Bible. That is a pastoral sobriety test, okay? Now, if you ask them to recite the first five books of the Bible and they start with, you know, uh, Genesis, uh, Psalms, you know, then you can go at them like Eli did, like you're drunk, Okay? And I know it, and so you need to knock it off. Um, but he didn't do that, didn't, didn't do anything, just ran right in there and started saying crazy stuff. So after he realizes he messes up, <laughs> then he blesses her and he says, go in peace, may God grant your request. So I would have done that too probably. How else do you get out of that situation? Um, so here's what her request was. Her request was that God would give her a son, and then she made a promise that if he did, she would give the boy back to God so that he could serve in the house of the Lord, okay? So 
Chapter 1 of the book of 1 Samuel ends with Hannah making good on her promise. Chapter 2 begins with her praying uh, as she gave Samuel her son to Eli the priest to train and to raise. Verse 12 of chapter 2 is where we're going to begin. Uh, and that's where we're going to start our focus. And it begins to describe Eli's sons who were also priests. So we're going to start chapter 2, 1 Samuel, uh, verse 12. Okay? And I'm going to read right now to verse 17. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord and the custom of the priests with the people. When any man was offering a sacrifice... The priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Thus they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first and then take as much as you desire. Then he would say, no, but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for the men despised the offering of the Lord. Now, first of all, I realize that uh, I hassle a lot of my vegetarian friends here a lot. and I talk about how much God likes barbecue and such. And so I wanted you to know that I might have found you here a comeback verse, right? Because these guys get in trouble for eating too much meat. So you vegetarians now have a punchback verse, right? So there you go. That's my gift to you. Um, <clears throat> not really. So, however, what we do see here is really tragic. Um, we got two guys that verse 12 says, don't even know the Lord. And the Hebrew rendering of this word worthless, it, it literally is sons of Belial, which is a pagan god and, and like a demon in that culture. He's saying they're worthless, they're sons of Belial, and, and these guys are serving as priests in God's house. Um, now, I know for most of us, all this talk of a three-pronged fork and such might be confusing, but here's the deal. Here's why this really matters, okay? Okay. So we're talking about sacrifices. A portion of the sacrifice was supposed to go to God. A portion of the sacrifice was supposed to go to the priest. And a portion then was supposed to also go to the person that was offering it. That's the way it worked. The priests, based on uh, commands given by Moses, um, the priests were supposed to take a part of the breast and the shoulder of the animal. But instead, what they were doing, and they weren't doing it themselves, they were having their servants go do it, uh, because punks always have someone else do their dirty work. Uh, They were having their servants walk up with a big meat hook and jab it down into the pot. And however much they pulled out is what they were going to take. And it was way more than they were allotted. And that really wasn't the worst that was happening. That was bad because you're taking part of what was supposed to go to the person that was offering. But more importantly, you're taking part of what was supposed to go to the Lord. That's a no-no, okay? We don't touch what's the Lord's. But that's not the worst part. The worst part is described in 15 and 16. Let me read it to you again. And And you may not have caught why this matters. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give the priest meat for roasting, as he will not take boiled meat from you, only raw. If the man said to him, They must surely burn the fat first, and then take as much as you desire, then he would say, No, 
but you shall give it to me now. And if not, I will take it by force. First of all, what I'm pointing out to you is that these guys are threatening people coming to give offerings. These are supposed to be the representatives, the men of God, watching over the temple, taking care of the people, making sure sacrifices are happening the way they should be. These guys are threatening people uh, if they don't do what they want them to do so that they can you know, take this, this bigger-than-they-should-have portion which is disgusting, right? That, that somebody that's supposed to be a leader over God's people, a shepherd over God's people, somebody that's supposed to be taking care of them is extorting them, okay? That really ticks the Lord off. But here's the other thing that's going on. Probably what's happening is uh, the, the, the priest's servant is saying, uh, give the priest some meat for roasting. And when the guy pushes back about, well, they have to burn the fat off first. Most of us are like, what? What's the deal? Like, okay, they're not using a George Foreman, so all the fat's not dripping off. So what, I don't get the point. Is this a health issue? No, the fat was considered the choicest and best part of the animal. And so who do you think that was supposed to go to? That's supposed to go to God. That's why that was burned first. So the fat was given to God. But here comes the priest's servant talking about, no, no, it doesn't matter. You just give me that whole thing and let us handle it. And even if the person that knew better was saying, hold on a minute, we got to give to God what's best first, then take whatever you want. They weren't even arguing with him about the part they were supposed to get. They just want to make sure God got what he was supposed to get. Then he's going to threaten him and tell him he's going to take it by force. Here's the worst part about it. It probably had nothing to do with the priest wanting to roast the meat versus boiling it. It probably had everything to do with the fact that he could take the raw meat and sell it. <clears throat> Verse 17 says that the sin of Hophni and Phinehas caused others to be discouraged and to despise giving offerings to the Lord. <clears throat> this is not unlike many so-called ministers today who prostitute themselves for the sake of monetary gain. They preach a false gospel of guaranteed wealth and health if you sow your financial seeds to their particular ministries. Here's the deal. According to Jesus... God does not play when it comes to men leading others astray because of their greed. There's a point where Jesus addresses this and he says, It'd be better for you to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause one of God's children to stumble. And that's what's happening. These people are getting so discouraged because of the, this, this corruptness of the priests and their servants, they're getting to the point where they're despising even giving offerings. And we've seen this before. And I see this now in conversations that I have with people. They see these high-profile so-called preachers, you know, flying around in Learjets, driving Bentleys, wearing $6,000 suits, prostituting themselves for the sake of sordid gain, and they don't really want anything to do with God anymore. And you know what? I'm thankful there's repentance available for everyone, but I sure hope those brothers find it before they have to deal with bronze feet, fire eyes, hair white as snow, sword coming out of his mouth, Revelation-style Jesus. I think maybe they read Matthew through John, and they think Jesus is a humble Galilean peasant. They forget that he's now the risen, triumphant Lord, and they're going to answer to him one day. They should consider that because it's heavy. We're going to see it didn't go too good for these guys either. <clears throat> James 3 also says that this is why many should not become teachers, for they will be judged more harshly. And I believe that's totally, rightly so. It doesn't matter what I think about it, it's in the Bible, so that's the way it is. Verses 22 through 25, let's read that together. 
Now Eli was very old, and he heard all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who served at the doorway of the tent of meeting. He said to them, why do you do such things, the evil things that I hear from all these people? No, my sons, for the report is not good, which I hear the Lord's people circulating. If one man sins against another, God will mediate for him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Now, first of all, we see that these guys weren't just messing with the offerings and being greedy, but they were sinning sexually as well. Now, apparently, it is not a new phenomenon for those who are supposed to be leaders among God's people to abandon their post for money and sex. What is it? What is the constant vice that seems to lure people away from the Lord? And it seems specifically those two things, sex and money, seems to continually plague men and women that are supposed to be leaders among God's people. What, what can it really be? What, what's at the root of that? Well, we have to ask ourselves, what has the blinding power to cause someone to go so sideways stupid as to think that their sexual drive is more important than obeying the God that created sex? What can cause someone to become so blindly ignorant that they would begin to believe it was their right to profit from the service of God instead of giving everything they have to the service of God? What is it? What is it? It's pride. Every single time. And it's the mother of every other sin. It's the only way these guys could get to the point where they think they can stick their hands in and start taking part of the offering that belongs to God. It's the only way they think they can use the front entrance to God's meeting place as a place to hook up with women. Pride. It makes you dumb. It makes you stupid. It makes you blind. Humility is only possible by the Spirit of God. The natural inclination of man is to be self-focused and to be selfish and to be all about what is best for me by my perception. The gospel is the only thing that breaks that kind of pride. The gospel is the only thing that comes and shows you it's not about you. That Jesus went first, making it all about others so that we could follow in his footsteps. He humbled himself. The highest made himself lowest for the sake of even those who were his enemies. And so we cannot ever exploit others for the sake of something that we perceive to be a right. What right do we really have? As broken sinners that deserve nothing but the retribution that should be handed down from a holy God. Our rights are pretty nil. What we have is grace. We have the privilege of repentance. We have the privilege of the potential of relationship with God through faith in Christ. That's what we have. The only right we have is judgment. By God's grace and mercy, we don't have to receive that. We shouldn't feel entitled. We see here that Eli rebukes his sons, but his rebuke is weak and flaccid in comparison to the severity of his son's transgressions. But it seems also that the damage was done, even though their father came, even though their father made this attempt, it seems the damage was done and their fate was determined. Now, some of you may see this phrase... And I hope you weren't distracted by it uh, the whole time. Some of you see this phrase, uh, for the Lord desired to put them to death. You see that as either strange or unfair or out of character for God. I want you to know that it's not. And I want to deal with why. Uh, that's, that's the end of verse 25. But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for the Lord desired to put them to death. Okay? Here's, here's how we need to frame that and understand that, that sentence. God is completely omniscient. 
Okay, that means he is all-knowing, and his knowledge is not contained by time. All the way backwards, all the way forward. God is all-knowing. He knows all things. He can see down at the deepest recesses of every human heart throughout all of time. He is not limited in any way. His knowledge is complete. Repentance is a gift from him. God is a good steward, and he will not waste his gifts upon those who will pridefully reject them. All God did was allowed these two slimy charlatans posing as men of God to have what they really wanted. His judgment upon them was that he didn't get in their way and he let them run headlong into their own destruction. That was their judgment upon him. And we also need to understand that Romans 1 lets us know that this is, this is not out of character for God. You might think, oh, well... That sounds like the mean Old Testament God who would do something like that. Well, let me tell you something. Romans 1 is after Christ's death and triumphant resurrection, and it still says you continue to reject the conviction of God. You continue to decide to do what it is you think is best instead of what God has made plain is his command and his will for you that is for your good. You continue to do that, keep on going. Eventually, what he's going to do, this, this is what the passive wrath of God looks like. He'll go, okay. You can have it. You've decided you know better than I do. You've decided you want what you want versus what I have declared to be my desire for you. Go ahead and have it. And it's bad for us every single time. That's the scariest verses in the Bible. People, people for years have been mad about preachers preaching, you know, bringing up Sodom and Gomorrah, and they call it fire and brimstone. And, oh, how are you going to talk about a, a God of judgment like that? Listen, man, I'm, I'm not concerned about fire and brimstone. As a matter of fact, if I'm starting to get wayward, if I'm starting to get jacked up in my thinking, if pride has blinded me to the point where I'm deciding I know better than the God that made me what's good for me, I would sincerely hope he would do something that would be the equivalent of smacking me upside my fat head so that I get the point that I'm in trouble. I would much rather his active judgment come and shake me out of my stupidity than to just turn me over and let me have that stupidity. I'm thankful that God has created the church so that we can live in authentic community and accountability. And what that does is it builds in the, these roadblocks so that when we start to run towards that ignorance, we have people that love us that can trip us. <laughs> Amen. Some of you have been tripped by somebody that loves you before, and you're thankful for it. Some of you have done the tripping. Yeah, we got some hands in the back. Yes, they've been tripped for Jesus. Amen. Does that mean you were straight tripping? I know. I know. So good. All right. Um, so that's, that's the deal there. That's the deal there. Um, these guys had set their, their hearts and their faces like flint against God, even the appeals of their father. Um, weren't going to make a difference. And uh, they were not granted repentance, which is a gift. It's a privilege. And so we need to think about it that way today. When we have the opportunity today to come before God in communion and repent for the places we've fallen short, uh, we should not take that as a common thing. We shouldn't think of it as just something we do. We should realize that it is an incredible and beautiful privilege that was purchased with the precious blood of Christ. And we should not treat it lightly, friends. Amen. Verses uh, 26 through 36. Let's read these together, okay? Now we start to see the uh, consequences unfurl. 
Now the boy, the boy Samuel was growing in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and with men. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in bondage to Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose them from all the tribes of Israel to be my priests, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to carry an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all of the fire offerings of the sons of Israel? Why did you kick at my sacrifice and at my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling, and honor your sons above me by making yourselves fat with the choicest of every offering of my people Israel? Therefore, the Lord God of Israel declares, I did indeed say that your house and the house of your father should walk before me forever, but now the Lord declares, far be it from me. For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me will be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will break your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. You will see the distress of my dwelling in spite of all the good that I do for Israel, and an old man will not be in your house forever. Yet I will not cut off every man of yours from, all, from my altar, so that your eyes will fail from weeping and your soul grieve, and all the increase of your house will die in the prime of life. This will be the sign to you which will come concerning your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. On the same day, both of them will die, but I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my soul, and I will build him an enduring house, and he will walk before my anointed always. Everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread and say, please assign me to one of the priest's offices so that I may eat a piece of bread. What we see here is a prophecy against Eli and his family because of their transgressions. Chapter 4 describes its fulfillment. Israel is at war with the Philistines, and they're getting whooped. They decide that they should take the Ark of the Covenant out to battle so the Lord will be with them, something that's worked in the past. The problem this time is that you got old, uh, old hornball Hophni and sticky fingers Phineas out in front of the Ark leading the charge. Okay, So how do you think that went? It didn't go good. You got a couple of thieves and sexual deviants out here representing God on the battlefield. It's not going to go well. They get destroyed. Uh, the Philistines wipe them out. Now some of you might be thinking uh, that I'm being a little hard on them too. You might be thinking, listen, none of us are perfect. We all make mistakes. And listen, I would agree with that. But in this specific situation... I want to say no. I don't think I am being too hard on them because if you presume to be a leader among God's people and you are charged with taking care of them and instead you exploit them for your own selfishness, there are no words strong enough to describe you. Now, the Bible chooses the word worthless in chapter 2. And so I'll stick with that for the sake of brevity. So these guys go out. They're so blinded by pride that they actually think they're going to carry the ark of the Lord out with, with all that they're doing, uh, with all of their posing, with all of their uh, faking as if they're really serving God or, or serving God's people. Uh, they're, they're so blinded by pride they think they're going to go out with the ark of the Lord and make a difference in the battle. It doesn't happen. The Philistines wipe them out. 30,000 Israeli foot soldiers gone in a day. It, it says the slaughter was terrible. The Philistines take control of the ark which is real bad, and one guy escapes, and uh, verse 12 of chapter 4 is where he starts to tell Eli what happened. So I just gave you kind of the 
arc of what's going on in chapter 4, how the battle goes, it goes bad. Verse 12, somebody's running back uh, that escaped the battle, and they're going to tell Eli what happened. Now a man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes torn and dust on his head. When he came, behold, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, eagerly watching, because his heart was trembling for the ark of God. So the man came to tell it in the city, and all the city cried out. When Eli heard the noise of the outcry, he said, What does the noise of this commotion mean? Then the man came hurriedly and told Eli. Now Eli was ninety-eight years old, and his eyes were set so that he could not see. The man said to Eli, I am the one who came from the battle line. Indeed, I escaped from the battle line today. And he said, How did things go, my son? Then the one who brought the news replied, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great slaughter among the people. And your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been taken. When he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell off the seat backward beside the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died, for he was old and heavy. Thus he judged Israel forty years. <clears throat> Life lesson one that we're going to draw from all that we've read today is that we need to exercise and eat right or else we will get fat and old and break our necks and die. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not a life lesson. However, I did think it might help add a little motivation when you're putting your New Year's resolutions together. So you're welcome for that. You don't want to get fat and old and break your neck and die. So amen, right? Salads and gym, lots of push-ups. All right. Okay. Uh, we're, uh, that had nothing to do with anything. We're going to primarily draw lessons about family and parenting from the life of Eli. Again, there's other things that could be drawn uh, out of Eli's experience, especially in his um, dealings with Samuel, but I'm, I'm staying away from that a little bit because uh, we'll be looking at the life of Samuel next week. So uh, we're going to look a lot at, at, at family dynamics and, and some uh, things about parenting from this, okay? Um, life lesson one. We cannot assume that kids raised in Christian homes know the Lord, okay? I know some of you personally. I know some of you were raised in Christian homes. And I know some of you, it is only by God's grace <laughs> that you're serving God today. It should not have been an assumption uh, that you belong to the Lord simply because your parents uh, had declared their allegiance to Christ. Uh, and I think that's 100% true. We should never make an assumption the kids raised in Christian homes know the Lord. Verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 12 says that these two guys that were raised in the high priest's home did not know the Lord. I think we need to ask ourselves, how is that possible? First of all, we need to say that not all the responsibility lays on Eli. There is always the potential for kids who grew up with loving parents, who love Jesus, to decide that they don't want any part of the faith of their parents. That is a possibility. On the flip side, there's always hope for kids raised by ungodly people to grow up and love and serve the Lord. Thank God for that. Amen. However, there are definitely things that we can pay attention and we can look out for and learn uh, from Eli's experience. Now, I think it would seem, I would make the argument that Eli genuinely did serve the Lord, uh, though imperfectly, that's true for all of us. Uh, for example, not something we read, but something I would cite to you is that when Samuel prophesies to him that God's judgment is coming upon him, here's his response. So essentially, uh, chapter 2, I read to you that, that a man of God came and prophesied to Eli, it's not going to go good, bro. Um, and then uh, 
God, you guys probably know the story of God calling to Samuel several times. He thinks it's Eli. He keeps coming out to him. And what God, the first prophecy he gives to Samuel is confirming uh, that what was said to Eli before is about to go down. And so that was hard for Samuel, uh, obviously, because he's coming to his mentor to say, hey, God's really upset and things are about to go bad for you. But um, Eli says to him, don't hold back anything that God said to you. I want to hear it. And when, when Samuel pours out to him everything that was said, this is Eli's response. This is what I'm getting to. I'm giving you this is evidence that he really did serve the Lord. He gets a real bad piece of news from Samuel, and here's his answer. It is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. That's a pretty mature response to getting bad news from the Lord, especially when the bad news seems to be coming from the Lord. Now, it was a, it was a result of consequences of actions that he and his family had done. However, um, that seems like a pretty mature response. Uh, I think the fact that he was able also to take um, Samuel in and, and teach him something that ended up him being uh, a, a faithful priest before the Lord is also evidence. I do think Eli served the Lord. Sometimes, though, even parents that serve the Lord can be so focused on working hard or doing ministry or a whole host of other good things that the kids get shuffled to the back burner. And sadly, many times, parents assume they are doing all the good things they are doing for the sake of the children, when all the time, what's really happening is the kids are being shuffled along to the back, and, and the parents are doing, doing, doing uh, for the kids, and what the kids really need is for the parents to be with them every once in a while. Um, and that's tragic. You see that a lot of times in pastors' homes, where pastors get pulled. I, I had a conversation with someone this week where they, it had bothered them for a long time that they had sent me a text telling me that somebody was in the hospital and that I didn't go to the hospital. And so they weren't coming at me crazy, uh, but they said, I just, this has bothered me and I wanted to know why you didn't go. And so I spent a fair amount of time explaining to them that uh, I am one man and I have to be very strategic and prayerful about where I invest time. And these were not somebody that I was connected to. I knew that there was other people, other ministers that were connected to them. And I prayed about it, and I did not feel like that two hours was something that I was supposed to go and do. And this, I gave this person the option to say, listen, I understand that probably what you've been told is somebody, especially a pastor, should help everyone. However, that's impossible. And I went on to explain to him that even at the size that we are at Love City, we're, we're not a huge church, we're growing, but even at the point that we find ourselves today, I cannot personally attend to the needs of every person that calls Love City home. That is why we have community group leaders and other leaders that have stepped up and said, I feel called and I'm willing to help share and carry the burden of praying for people, loving people, visiting them in the hospital, uh, taking them stuff when they're sick. Because a lot of times what happens is people have this expectation uh, upon people in ministry uh, that, you know, they're supposed to be everything to everybody. And, you know, we, we see here that that's not going to work. We see, secondly, that uh, Moses uh, got in trouble from his father-in-law Jethro uh, by God's design. When he was trying to judge everything for all the people of Israel, Jethro said, bro, you're going to burn out. First of all, secondly, you're not taking good care of the people. That's a problem. And what you do, when you do that, when, when, when you have 
ministry leaders that buy into that mentality and they, and they, want, to, they want to wear a cape and be the, the, kind of at the top of the spiritual pyramid and the one that everybody comes to, what you have then is a, a culture within your church family that dwarfs and doesn't leave room for anybody else to grow in the gifts that God put in them. So we're not going to do that. And that's also why over the next several weeks, we're going to have other men of God come up and preach the word. Because I'm not the only guy in this church with a Bible, and I'm not the only guy in this church with a gift to teach the word. And I'm so happy about that. I'm thrilled about it. Like, we're super, super blessed. I'm so happy I'm spitting. You see that? That's gross. You know you're thrilled, man, when you're slobbering everywhere. So um, I was glad I got to have that conversation, and, and that person ended up getting it and... and um, being really thankful that, that I thought that way. So, uh, and I'm thankful, too, that I've had men of God older than me, more seasoned than me, because I am very prone to not think right about that. I'm very prone to want to try to be everything to everybody, never let anybody down, never disappoint somebody. And I could very easily, in the course of trying to accomplish that impossible feat, shift those that I am called to pour time into, which would be the leaders here at Love City. Well, let me do that order better. My family, my wife and kids, the leaders here at Love City, and then as many of the rest of you as I can get to, by God's grace, right? Um, but if I shuffle my kids to the back and they don't get shepherded or loved, and then they end up being 20 and hating God because they can't understand how, you know, God is a father and all my dad ever did was yell at me to shut up because he was busy helping somebody else, mm, that's not going to go good. And so I'm thankful to God for the wisdom of the scriptures. I'm thankful to God for um, seasoned men that have smacked me around enough uh, to help me understand that. Because it took several uh, strong, stern blows. And so I'm thankful that they had the guts to do it. Because I think it'd be scary to smack me. So, sometimes. I've been told that it is. All right. Um, all right. So, I think Eli genuinely served the Lord. Uh, however, I think he may... Uh, have fallen into that pit of doing everything for everybody else instead of taking care of his sons, teaching them how to really love the Lord. Um, I want to give you a few practical things that will give children a better shot at genuinely knowing the Lord. Now, some of you might be sitting here saying, uh, <laughs> I doubt any of you are really saying this, but there might be a few of you in here that really feel called and gifted to singleness, which means you will never have children, and you might think, oh, well, this doesn't apply to me. Wrong. Here's why. Because there is an incredible vacuum and a hole uh, in this day and age of gospel parents, specifically gospel fathers. And so whether or not you will have biological children, if you are a Christian and you are following Christ, you will be called to walk in an anointing of gospel parenthood. Because there will be somebody that needs you to love them like a good gospel parent would. And so it doesn't matter where you find yourself on the spectrum of age, uh, these principles about, and I'm going to be talking about kids, but this is really true about anybody uh, that we would be called to minister to, okay? So here's a few practical things that will give kids a better shot at genuinely knowing the Lord and not just growing up in a Christian house uh, and everyone assuming that they do, okay? First of all, I would say share testimonies with them. Um, let the kids know when there's problems and let the, to a degree, but also let the kids know when the Lord answers. I think sometimes they're just kind of there and we got to take care of them, we got to feed them, and we got to get the boogers off their noses and like clean up the most recent 25 messes they made. And so, like, we feel like if we just accomplish that, like, uh, okay, it's done. But sometimes, like, it's hard to intentionally sit down and say, okay, 
here's a situation that was happening, or here's something we're going through right now, or even sitting them down to pray and ask for them to join their faith with you as you pray through a difficulty in the family or somebody that you know of, somebody in your church family. Um, we, uh, we oftentimes will, you know, Max isn't quite there yet. Um, you know, he's, he uh, prays for good dreams and thanks God for the food, but he's, he's not really getting into, he's not into prayer requests yet, um, mainly because he's frustrated if the meal prayer takes more than 30 seconds because dude's ready to eat. So, um, but Lucy, we can. We can we'll give Lucy prayer requests, and I promise you, man, she remembers them, and she prays about them. And uh, it's cool when I get to come back to her and say, hey, you know that thing we were praying about? God showed up. Here's what happened. And uh, I'll tell you what, you can believe this or not, the last time I was really feeling sick, I, that whatever that thing was that was going through everybody's headspace like two months ago, uh, I felt it trying to get on me, and I was like, man, I just don't have time to do this. And so... Um, I kneeled down next to Lucy. She was sitting in my uh, easy chair, and I said, Lucy, will you pray for Daddy? I'm not feeling good. And she put her little hand on my head, and she prayed for, for me. She said, uh, Jesus, please help Daddy's head feel better. Amen. And I promise you, that was at the beginning of the day. I was heading out to work. By the end of the day, my head was totally cleared up. Now, you can say what you want about it. It's a coincidence. Listen, man, I think childlike faith does stuff. And so Lucy's getting all my prayer requests now. I'm just... She, she's got a stack, you know, next to her bed. <laughs> Honey, I need you to go through these before you go to sleep. But I'm tired. Honey, I don't care. I need, I need you to pray about this. <laughs> I need some of this stuff to get done, okay? <laughs> I kid, I kid. All right. Uh, secondly, take them to do ministry with you so they can see the power of Jesus in action. Um, you know, when you have opportunities to go do things, whether it's outreach opportunities, I know... Um, Many of you have brought kids out to outreach when it's appropriate and the time works and all that. Um, I, I've been able to take Lucy out to outreach. Uh, and also, um, I was able to take both the kids this week. There's a, an elderly man on our street. His name is Harold. Pray for him. I'm really hoping to get him here uh, at some point. But um, we've been ministering to him since we moved on the street we live on. And um, I took them down this week. We took a card for, for Christmas. And um, his, his wife died about eight years ago. And he didn't do much but sit in the house, and um, it's, it's kind of sad. I, every time I go over there, he you know, kind of tells me the same stories and stuff, but uh, we still do it. But the thing that really, I mean, he's happy to see me and talk to me, you know, but I think he can kind of take it or leave it, but I take the kids down there, and uh, he, I mean, he jumps up out of the chair, he's hugging them, he's giving them candy, and, you know, I can't stop him, so they're over there smashing chocolate bars and stuff, but Whatever. So the bottom line is, um, and, and, you know, I think Max just knows that Harold gives him candy at this point. Again, he's kind of food focused. But Lucy knows what we're going down there to do. And uh, she doesn't ask for food. You know, when she gets there, she goes down, she gives him a hug. She talks to him for a minute and, uh, you know, thinks of things that she can tell him about that she's got going on. And, uh, I, you know, I just think taking, don't, don't count your kids out, man, as, as, able to do ministry with you. They, they are incredible assets. And um, I've just seen that to be true over and over again. So, And when they get to see the power of Jesus working in someone's life, it, it makes it less of kind of a, a form of godliness, and they start to realize there's power in it, and it's real, which is good. Um, number three, I would say pray with them and for them. Um, I think sometimes we, we, based on our own 
makeup or the rhythms of the way we do things, we tend to do one or the other. I think it's important to pray with them and for them, to do both of those. Uh, they learn how to pray by listening to us, um, and praying for them, obviously, I think is the part of the occupation of every parent. So pray with them and for them. I would also say, uh, number four, uh, take opportunities to worship with them. And I'm specifically saying, of course, worship is all of life, uh, and we're a big proponent of that idea here, that worship is not you know, a set time where there's music and singing. All of our life should be worship poured out before God. But I am here specifically speaking of um, worshiping by singing songs with your kids to Jesus. Uh, I think there's something really valuable in that, and, and you worshiping with them and them worshiping with you, doing that outside of the setting of the four walls of the church building so that they don't have this um, sacred-secular divide in their mind where they think that we go and we deal with God's stuff at that place, but then the rest of life is just this other stuff we do, but there should be absolutely no divide to that, and we don't want to so, that's kind of a natural thing people do is compartmentalize that, and we don't want to feed into our kids doing that, and so look for opportunities in your home, in the car, wherever you can, worship with them, and I would also say that um, sometimes kids in raised in Christian homes, because there's always just kind of this assumption that they know the Lord, I think sometimes they do struggle to really understand grace or sometimes the need for it, because if they've like really good kids that didn't screw up and do a bunch of bad stuff like I did, um, it, it's hard for them to kind of understand their need for a Savior. But one of the things I've seen break through that, and I was a youth pastor for eight years, one of the things I consistently saw smash um, kind of the, the religious walls that people tend to build, and, and for a lot of kids that were raised in Christian homes that I think just kind of were riding on the coattails of their parents' faith, if you would if you could get them in a setting where there was real, authentic, vibrant worship and a connection to God's Spirit through that uh, experience, I, I hesitate to use that word because I'm not about chasing experiences, but there is something to uh, certain times where you, you intentionally set aside time to worship God with kind of no time limits, and, and there's this, this tangible um, coming in of His presence that is... It's really indescribable, and um, when they taste and see that, uh, it kind of takes it from religious forms to now they realize they've encountered the living God. And so I would just encourage you to create space and environment for that to happen. And it's good for us, too. Again, anytime we're doing that, we're practicing for heaven. And uh, I'll tell you, I, I've been in, in settings of, of prolonged singing of songs and worship to the Lord where... Uh, I, 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 I tend to be pretty good at describing things, and I can't describe it for you, uh, what God has done in those settings, to the point where, I mean, even your mortal flesh is affected. I mean, I've, I've suffered with back pain and aches and stuff just from working too hard, starting too young, and I, I've been in times in God's presence where I'll, I'll stand up after two or three hours of just laying on my face, weeping before the Lord, and, and I... You know, you, like I know, like when I go to stand up, if I'm down to a knee for any amount of time, I know when I stand up, like at what point, you know, like if it was a protractor, <laughs> at 60 degrees, there's going to be, a, you know, and I know, like I'm, I'm pre-ready to grunt, but I, you, I'll stand up, man, and that's gone. Um, and, you know, I think everything gets made right in the Lord's presence. So 
I'm just saying, get your kids in God's presence, bottom line, as much as you possibly can in a real and vibrant way. And uh, don't let it just be forms of godliness. I want to say to all of us that, um, and I don't, I don't have any biological children yet that fit this profile, but I got a lot of spiritual kids that do, and so I, I promise you I understand your pain. Uh, if you're somebody dealing with the pain of a wayward child at this point, uh, just remember that nobody would have thought that the prodigal son would return the way he left. Nobody would have thought he was coming back. But that father was waiting there for him. There's really important reasons that Jesus told us that story. It's not just some ancient story about a father and his son. That's called a parable. And he's teaching us something about the way God deals with us. And so, if you've got a child that is not currently serving the Lord, I want you to remember that the story's not over. And there's always hope because of Jesus. Life lesson two. Uh, Life lesson number two is that each of our lives is currently teaching a lesson. Each of our lives is teaching a lesson. Now, this is true whether we have kids or not. Again, you could start to think, man, it's all about parents. Well, first of all, I would say the gospel parenthood thing applies to you. If you're going to belong to Jesus, there's going to be somebody that's going to need you to love them, disciple them, and work these principles, whether they biologically belong to you or not. But secondly, um, each of our lives is teaching a lesson whether we have little children watching us all the time or not. Our actions communicate our values, and people notice. People are looking all the time, especially those in your sphere of influence that know you belong to Christ. Now, Eli may have not been stealing and sleeping around like his sons, but it's pretty clear that he was impulsive and indulgent. These characteristics were passed on, and they were magnified in his sons. How do we know that he's impulsive? First of all, we see in chapter 1 that he brashly accuses Hannah of being drunk. Instead of patiently assessing the situation, trying to figure out why is this girl struggling, he jumps to a conclusion and acts on it. We are told in the book of James that we should be quick to listen and slow to speak, and very few quality decisions are made in haste. And so I believe that uh, it's pretty clear that Eli was impulsive, and I think his sons were impulsive times 10. Indulgent. Uh, Most commentators agree that there's a reason that Eli's weight was mentioned at his death. Eli may never have gone so far as to steal uh, meat to fill his appetite, but it is clear that he was to some degree indulgent. And the reality is there is no room for indulgence in the service of God. Jesus said this in Luke 9.23. Hear me in this. What, why am I tell, right now I'm telling you something Jesus said, and the reason I'm telling you is I'm, I'm defending this premise. There is no room for indulgence in the service of the, of the one true God. Okay? Here's what Luke 9.23 says. This is the words of Christ. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Jesus is so good at closing loopholes. And he does it for us there. There's no room for indulgence. And the problem is that indulgence becomes entitlement. And this seems to be the attitude that Eli's sons operated in. It is possible that as Eli got older, he repented of these things and asked for God's grace to help him defeat these sinful tendencies. 
Evidence of this would be in the fact that by the time Samuel was old enough to come under his tutelage, it seems that Eli was able to help him become a faithful man of God. I would point out to you something interesting, however, if you continue to read the story, Samuel's sons, so a full generation later, two sons also rebelled. And this is what led to the time of the kings, because Samuel's sons could not take over his post as judges. That's why the time of the judges ended, the time of the kings began. Both Samuel's sons rebelled. Uh, It's just interesting about how our actions can echo throughout generations. Life lesson three. The gospel gives us hope as parents. Most parents tend towards one extreme or the other. Either too soft on their kids or too hard on them. If someone struck this balance exactly, they would be the perfect parent. And all the parents, or anyone who's ever had a parent in the room, knows that a perfect parent is about as real as a leprechaun riding a unicorn. Right? Some of you are like, well, I don't believe in that. No. No, it's not real. And neither are perfect parents. Okay? However, the gospel helps us to work towards finding that balance more often. And when we are able to teach our kids about sin and its effects... And that none of us is perfect, but we can also model repentance for them as we require it of them, right? So we can teach our kids that sin has consequences, that none of us is perfect, and we can model repentance for them even as we require it of them. The gospel is the only way that's possible. We then get to teach them that repentance is a gift that is only possible because of Jesus' perfect life, his sacrificial death, and his triumphant resurrection. We get to teach them that repentance is a gift. And as we teach them the gospel with our words and lives, we are constantly pointing them towards Jesus, our Savior, King, and then we will be reminded that he was able all at the same time to be both tough and tender. And this is what is called for to be balanced gospel parents. There is a time to be tough with our kids. Rebellion and sin has to be dealt with. There's also a time to be tender. And most of us will tend towards one end of the spectrum or the other. And we're going to need God's help by His Spirit to find a balance of the two and to know when it is right for each. Amen. We're going to be reminded as we teach our children the gospel and as we live it out in front of them we'll be reminded that it's incredibly loving to discipline our children and to teach them that sin has consequences. But we will also be humble and vibrantly aware of our own imperfection, which will keep us from having unrealistic expectations of them. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation, and it is our only hope for raising kids who will love and serve the Lord. We must speak the gospel We need to live the gospel, and we have to model the gospel for our children. And that includes calling them to repentance when they miss the mark, and repenting to them when we miss the mark. Thank God that he has promised the help of his spirit to fulfill all that he has put us here to do, including the monumental task of raising little humans to love and serve him. May we be a people who are neither impulsive or indulgent, but prayerful and selfless instead. May we have grace for our parents, for our children, and for all mankind with the same measure we would hope 
to receive it. And may we cling to the feet of Jesus and the power of his gospel to accomplish the mission given to us by the one and only perfect Father. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come before you now in the name of Jesus. Lord God, we are thankful for all that the scriptures contain. We are thankful, Lord God, that we can learn from examples of the lives of those that have gone before us in the faith. I'm thankful, God, that there are positive examples. There are things that men and women did in service to you that we can follow after their example. There are also things, there are places where they failed and they came short of what it is expected of somebody that serves you. I thank you, God, we can learn from those things as well. Help us, God. Help us to be people that live by the power of your gospel to accomplish any and all of the mission that you've given us, and especially, Lord, this glorious task of parenting. I thank you, God, that we can learn from the example of Eli, who seemed to be soft on his sons, whether it was because of conviction and shame about his own sins so that he couldn't call his sons to repentance, or if he struggled with that common... Uh, struggle that parents have of, of wanting to be his son's friend as opposed to their father. I don't know what all the factors were, but God, I ask you to help us by your spirit to strike the balance that Jesus had. He showed us it's possible by the power of your spirit that we can be tough when it is required, that when rebellion and sin is causing consequences and harm to God's people, that we can be tough, but that we can also be tender to deal with the times when the consequences of sin have already happened and there's pain and there's rebuilding to do. Thank you, there's redemption that's possible. Lord, it's only by your strength and by the wisdom that comes from your spirit that we will know when each is appropriate. We're asking for the leading of your spirit and, and help and discernment to do well at that. God, we ask that we would not be indulgent or impulsive people. We ask, God, that we would be slow to speak, quick to listen, that by your spirit, Lord God, that we would not be people that jump into a situation and pridefully assume that because of how intelligent we are or how versed we are in whatever's going on that we can jump in and just hammer out a bunch of decisions. But God, may we be people that take a breath and lean constantly on the wisdom of your spirit. May we pray without ceasing as the scriptures command us to, that we would be in constant communication and connection with you, our perfect Father, the one who is aware of the deep inner workings of every heart and every situation. And may we humbly understand that we are in desperate need of your help every minute of every day. And may we call on that help and may we humbly receive it and may we walk in it to the benefit of your people and the glory of your name. God, may we not be indulgent. May we understand that the call for any person that's going to follow you, King Jesus, is that we would deny ourselves, that we would take up our cross daily and we would follow you. May we understand that sacrifice is a mark of the Christian life. And may we understand that it absolutely is going to cost us something to follow in your footsteps. But may we also remember that absolutely anything that we give up for the sake of this beautiful gospel will be given back a hundredfold. I thank you that when we, when we give for the sake of the gospel, that, Lord, you give evermore. And, and, and if it was nothing in this life, what you've promised us in eternity is enough, that we get to be with you forever, that we get to stand in the glory of your unveiled face forever, that we will be able to stand with all tribes and tongues and people we will get to declare your praises uninhibited by sin or time forever. 
God, may we look forward with anticipation to that. And may we realize that the prize you've set before us is of such greater value than anything we would lay down for the sake of accomplishing the mission you've given us to do. Lord, we give anything that we give with joy and we anxiously anticipate your final coming and the finishing of all the work that you've set out to do. Thank you that you let us be a part of it. It's only because of grace. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church, located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.